Let's pray. Father, it is um, you that we want and hunger for, for your involvement in our life, that through knowing you and growing in an understanding of you, that you will be the one to make us loving and grateful and joy-filled, patient, peaceful, kind, self-controlled, all those kind of fruits that when they begin to ripen, look like Jesus. So God, before we even begin this message, I pray in humble dependence and ask these words which I prepared, my heart which I prepared, that you would be the one who would stand behind it and speak to each person here in their need and to myself as well. In Christ's name, amen. The Salvation Army began in 1865. Most of us know it by a guy who's ringing a bell standing outside a door around Christmas time. But it began in 1865 with a man named William Booth, who was a London minister who at a certain point, who was a pastor in a church, became uncomfortable by all the discomfort he saw in the city by looking at the poor and the homeless and the hungry and the destitute he was moved to give up that comfortable place to reach out to those who are in discomfort and his original aim was actually to when people would come to a faith and understanding of Christ and begin to see the healing work in his life that he was he originally wanted to send them back into the churches within that area of London but soon realized that the poor weren't welcome in the pews of most churches and chapels of Victorian England. This is right off the very front page of the website. They tell this story. Regular churchgoers were appalled when the shabbily dressed, unwashed people came to join them in worship. They didn't have a place, a space, to bring those kind of people who were different. So Booth decided to found his own church. He he realized he needed a place for them to come together, so he founded the East London Christian Mission. And it grew rather slowly, but by faith and in a real sense that God's hand was on his life and this call was his, he began to see it grow. And it grew over time, and over time it began to spread, this whole movement, throughout the world. And actually by the 1900s, the army had spread around the world. He actually at one time, in one of his reports, called... The beginning of his first sentence was, the Christian mission is a volunteer army. And his son said, Dad, it's not volunteer. I'm not volunteering, I'm called. And in that midst of conversation, he was preparing an address to all these different leaders for this conference that they were going to have to keep people on mission and focus. He crossed out volunteer and put salvation, which is where you get the salvation army. Well, finally, as, it, as that movement began to, to grow and, and grew into 36 different countries, they would host these conferences once a year to do the things that needed to be done, but most importantly, to keep them in mission and on focus. And as Booth was getting older, as in one of those conferences, he was too ill to come. He had prepared his message. He had everything all ready and set to speak, but he wasn't able to come. So they asked him by cable what he was going to talk about, and he sent back by cable his message which was one word, others, with an exclamation point. That's all it was. He said, what do you want to say? What do you want to do to keep us in line, keep us on focus, to keep us on mission? And he just said, others. Well, when we read this letter to Galatians, it's interesting. As Paul begins and he's, he's 
really passionate, obviously, very upset because he wants to keep people on track, understanding what the gospel is about. But when you come to these chapters five and chapter six, you could easily do like Booth did and just write the word others. Because the whole purpose of the gospel, the righteousness that comes from God, that sets a standard so impossibly high that no one can do it. And because God, knowing that no one can love perfectly, that not a person in this room will end their life with a perfect track record of love before God and other people. He actually, God in His great love, says, I will do the work for you. I will make you righteous. I will send my Son who will live a perfect life, who on the cross will take the punishment that you deserve, the debt that you've built up, which means eternal separation with God, and I will give you a, a living relationship. All you need to do is trust what I've done for you. And that impossible standard of love, the reason he, he took it away is so that we wouldn't begin to, to walk throughout our entire life trying to get God to love us, concerned about ourselves, so that we lose focus on what was most important in the heart of God, and that is that we would know his love. And as we began to experience this love and understand his forgiveness and, and experience the ways he's been gentle to us and the way he has been patient to us and the way he's responded to our offense to him and to other people, that we ourselves would then respond in that same kind of love, forgiving people and being gentle and kind and patient, building trust and faith so that we would have intimate relationships with our, our spouses and our children and with those that we work with, all birthed out of a relationship that we have with God. That's Paul's point. All this, this sense of coming to our brokenness and humility, is about, it's about others. Because that's what's in the heart of God. Our focus wouldn't be on ourselves, but it would be on His ability to love. So there'd be no need to compare, there'd be no need to set external markers. We could, like Jesus said, when He, when he looked at His disciples, one of the last things He said to them as He looked at them, He said this, here's the command I give you, it's a new one. It's not what you're familiar with, what you've been walking around, what you've had within the, in, in the, the synagogues of your day. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples, not by some mark, not by something you do, not by something you wear, not by something that necessarily even people you hang around with in that sense, but by one thing that you have love. And it expresses itself to others. That's why Paul is he's driving home this message about the fact that grace leads us to a place of, of our own brokenness, our inability. And he brings us to the end of our faith and trust in ourselves to somehow be good enough for God. When we come to that place, we put our faith in Him. And if we put our faith in Him, that faith in Him allows for us to receive His Spirit. So grace leads to the Spirit so that now we can begin to fulfill the law of love. Not perfectly, but in this day-by-day, step-by-step relationship where He begins to allow His grace to move us so that His Spirit begins to move through us and so that when that happens, that faith, that kind of relationship begins to express itself in love. So that's why when you get to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, He basically sums up the whole message of Galatians in one sense. He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. It says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13. You can have all these things you do, but there's one thing that counts. It's love. It's others and how they receive God through you. And so love is simply doing good everywhere and always, is what Paul is saying as he gets to the end of this letter. And here's what it looks like. He gives three simple, what I call specific examples of what it looks like. Verse 1. He says, this is how you can love. By caring for one another when you see someone trapped by sin. 
Verses 2 through 5. Here's how you can love. By bearing up one another when you're by crushed by a burden. And then verses 6 through 10. By sharing with one another when God has blessed you. When he has come through someone else, maybe, and touched your heart. You share. So Paul continues to make it clear. He reiterates two truths over and over again. He says you can't be good enough to get God to love you, but you are always and everywhere to be good. He's answering that, that claim that says that if you don't follow the law and you don't try and, and live in such a way that you get God to love you, then why, why be good? And he makes this claim. You are set free and God gives you his love by the work he's done. You trust that. And as you trust that, you are always good everywhere and always expressing his love. So love is about others. The first thing in verse one of chapter six is he says, this is how you love. You care for one another when trapped. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. When someone is trapped in a sin, care for them, he says. Don't stand back in judgment. Don't shoot the wounded with condemnation. Don't reprimand harshly. And on the other hand, for some of us who may be afraid, don't have the courage, lack the strength, he says, don't be passive. When you see that someone is trapped, step in. The word caught that is in the New International Version actually means trapped. It's not necessarily deliberate or intentional. It can be this. It can be a person who is driven by even their own need, steps outside of where the Spirit is directing them. Instead of keeping in step with the Spirit, they step away from. It's, it has the idea, really, the word itself, is if a person is walking down the road, let's say in a winter night, and you walk across black ice, what happens? You slip and slide. It may not be intentional. He says, when you get caught, you get trapped, you're unexpectedly, suddenly find yourself in some kind of selfish, sinful direction. And you see that, that it can hurt themselves, it can hurt others, it offends God, then step in. The word sin is the word trespass. So it's kind of interesting. He says, when you see caught, not deliberate, but the word trespass actually means someone who has gotten out of step with the spirit. So it can be that at times when the need causes someone to not step with the Spirit and they step out of the Spirit, he is basically saying, like he said back in verse 25 of chapter 5, since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. The idea is that the person, when you see them out of step with the Spirit, we step in and help direct them and move them back in that path. We care for one another. And then he makes this point, you who are spiritual, which is really interesting because Paul had no problem saying that in a group of people there were some who were spiritual. That offends us to hear that. But he would say it often. He would say it in Corinthians. He says, you know, some of you are just fleshly. You're carnal. You're still living by your appetites. And you're still on milk. And at a certain point you need to move up. So that's a stage of growth. People actually move from a place of, of, of being directed by their flesh and understanding that and aware of that to a point where as they give over their life and continue to walk in the promptings of the Spirit and walk according to His Word, over time the Spirit begins to temper their life and comes in and begins to move into their life. And so He, he will actually say at times, those of you who are spiritual, or He'll say in Acts chapter 6, He says, set aside some people who are full of the Holy Spirit, spiritual and full of wisdom to care for a ministry. So he's basically saying, for some of you who, who have an understanding and the Spirit is tempering your life, I want you to step in. But now some of you are saying, oh, that puts me, you know, I'm, I'm off the hook. 
I'm, I'm one of those guys who, you know, I can't do that, so I won't. It, he's, he's not talking about that. Paul says um, none of us get a free pass even in this. Because just before that, he says to keep in step with the Spirit. And if we're keeping in step with the Spirit as we're walking the Spirit, if the Spirit prompts you, even though you may not be as what you consider spiritual as someone else, but you see something, you, prompted by the Spirit, are to what? Step in. And so he says, here's how you do it. You do it for the purpose of what? Restoring. So that they can get back on track. So that as they're beginning to step out and you see that the direction, the trajectory of their path is going to cause them into, to move into pain or set a, a direction or a lifestyle. That you come into their life in order to restore them. And it's a medical term that a doctor would use. So that when a person would break their bone, the doctor would come in and set it. It would be the kind of idea of a surgeon who would, who would walk in and, 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 and see uh, the need to remove a tumor or some kind of growth. And they would, they would surgically restore that body back to its normal place. But what I think is interesting is here. He also says this, restore him gently. And he gives the manner. If the purpose is to help them get back in step with the Spirit, the way you do it is gently. That's why doctors are really intelligent people. You know what they do when they want to operate on someone? They often put you under, right? That's a form of gentleness. It's really interesting. What Paul is saying is that when you see someone, you don't come out of a sense of judgment. You don't come out of a sense of condemnation. What you do not want to do is send them back into a lifestyle where they think they've got to get God to love them. What you want them to do is to see and acknowledge and understand and to see that what they maybe have deep within them that they want, God needs to provide and He will provide. You need the faith of an Abraham and you need to trust and to walk in that and let God do that. He loves you. All He asks is that you recognize this and you walk in the forgiveness of God. You don't go back and shame them and and in this sense cause them to begin to move into the cycle. And he says, do it gently. I remember, I remember when my daughter, when she was young, she had a sliver in her hand. And I saw that, and she would feel, and she felt the pain, and I said, well, I need to, I need to deal with that. And so she, she was all into it at that point, because she didn't want the thing in there. And then when I came down and I held her hand and she saw the needle, you know what she did? I mean, I, I wish I could have put her under. I mean, I, I, I was afraid I'd stab her in all kinds of places as she was pulling her arm away. And, and I think that's the very picture when I think about that, is the picture of gentleness that he's talking about. He's saying, come alongside someone, because you see what can happen. And I could see the festering and the problem, the difficulty that would happen in my daughter's life. So I wanted to come alongside. I wanted to grab a hold. I wanted to help do it. But I needed to do it in gentleness. And that's what God calls the church to do, to be gentle. So that when someone is trapped in sin and they're overtaken by a fleshly need, they do something that looks like a huge trespass in your mind. It really crosses the line. How do you approach them? And then he adds these words, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. I don't think he's afraid that you're going to fall into the same sin. I don't think that's what he means here at all by being tempted. In fact, what he seems to be implying is the temptation is really to move into pride. The temptation is to somehow stand and go, man, I'm glad I'm not like that. Or to come in harshly. See, Paul is really big on on self-examination. That's why he says, watch yourself, examine yourself. You'll see this a number of times. Whenever he asks you to deal with people out of love, he is constantly calling you to self-examination. 
which is your responsibility. Because love always everywhere does good. We're to care for one another when we see a friend trapped by sin. So practically, I just want to ask you a question this morning. Is there someone you need to care for? Is there someone near you who needs you to love them by gently and humbly coming to them and telling them the truth as you understand it? And and I want to ask you, how does helping set this person free look? If Jesus was to do it, what would it look like? The second thing he says is bearing up one another when crushed. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. He moves from the idea that you care for one another when they're trapped to this idea that you bear up with someone, and when someone is crushed, they're being weighed down, that you actually get your shoulder under there and you help them. Carry each other's burdens, bear each other's burdens, he says, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Again, you're not fulfilling this law as much as you are as you follow the Spirit and you walk in the Word of God. You begin to fulfill within your heart something that has been written by the Holy Spirit, which is, is His love. And that's the law that guides you. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one, here's examine again, examination once again, each one should test his own actions or prove, like you would prove a metal to see whether it's pure or to get the impurities out of it. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Love says you're responsible to help others. I want you to catch this to a point and to the point that they can help themselves. Amazed at, uh, it, it just amazes me how often Paul understands this whole idea of personal boundaries. Paul was not only a good theologian, he was also a good psychologist, if you want to put it that way. When it comes to the burdens of others, he was clear of what our responsibilities were to be. If you look at verse 2 and verse 5, he's talking about carrying and bearing a burden and a load. Carry each other's burdens, he writes, for each one should carry his own load. It sounds like, what is he talking about here? He's making two important points. Verse 2, you're responsible to others partially. Verse 5, you're responsible for yourself fully. There's a difference between the word burden in verse 2 and the word load in verse 5. And these these differences are crucial in understanding what Paul's getting at. The word burden in verse 2 is the idea of this crushing weight or a load. It's the idea, you know, you've been driving along the road. Let's say you go around California on one of those roads and it's a cliff on the side and it has these signs that say, watch out for what? Falling rocks. The idea is that if you were going along and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this huge rock just fell unexpectedly on you. That's the kind of burden he's talking about. He's talking about those times in our life when we're crushed by unexpected crises as we we go along the road of life. Maybe a loss of employment or our house burns down or there's a car accident or or even the result of of some foolish choices that you make and the consequences that come with them that, that weigh you down. He says, when life hits and crushes, we're to stop and we're to step in and shoulder this burden until the person can get back on their feet again. 
If you look at verse 1, again, this idea of being restored is important. The whole point of stepping in and helping someone when, when they're crushed by a burden is that you step in because they are in a place where they can't get up. They can't help themselves. So what you need to do is step in. You help as, a, as one who loves to shoulder that burden for a period of time. It's like when Jesus was telling the story of the Samaritan and the Good Samaritan. He says about these people that walk by. Finally, the Samaritan comes to this guy who's been beaten and left for dead. He, he can't do anything to help himself. In fact, in that desert sun, in that wilderness place, he would have died. If it wasn't for this good Samaritan who came along, he lifted him up, carried him to the, the next place where he could find shelter. And there where he found shelter, he made, he had made sure he had food, and he made sure he had the clothing he needed. He made sure he needed he got the medical help that he needed. He, he, it even says in the Scripture that he provided some money so that it would take care of the bills that needed to be taken care of till the person was able to get up on their own and move forward. You're responsible to others partially. The truth in general is this. We are to step in and then at some point step out again. That's what real love is. Love will prompt you to move in, step in, carry a burden for someone until they can get on their own feet. But if you go beyond that, you are no longer helping, but you begin to hurt that person. If you go beyond that, you begin to start carrying the load that they're to carry themselves. There is a point where you restore them. All this, he says, is done again with the spirit of humility and self-examination. God implores upon us through his word to constantly be humble, to be gentle, and to self-examine, to look at our hearts and to say, God, help me see where I am crossing boundaries that are not helpful any longer. Where I am stepping in in ways that bring more harm. Where I am carrying attitudes that when they, they kind of flood over into someone else's life, they create Difficulty. So in verses 3 and 4, he says, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test, like the proving of metal, to see their heart and their actions are pure. They should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves without comparing themselves to anybody else. So that if the burden is a result of some poor and foolish choices, he says, be careful. Be careful when you stand outside. Be careful when you are looking at it. That when you step in to help, you don't step in with this attitude that says, man, I am not like that. I would never cross the line. I'd never do that. Because when you step in, he says, be careful that when you step in and in, in help, that you don't stand up in a sense in your heart with pride. Because that's a natural inclination of our flesh. And our thoughts continue until Paul says, if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. He he basically draws us back to that kind of zero sum again and says, you know, quit comparing yourself to someone else. The best comparison throughout your entire life, if you want to look at your life and compare yourself to anyone, there is one person to compare yourself to. It's Jesus. That'll take care of all pride. Another way Paul could have written this is he says, if anyone thinks to himself that there's somebody... They're really a nobody. And the only one they're deceiving is themselves. The person in the cleverness of their own mind deceives nobody but their own self. Isn't it true? A lot of times you can, it's just, you, can, you can kind of just go and you stand back and you can look and you can see the pride. And, and you kind of go, why in the world can't they see it? You know, it's interesting that he goes on and he says, you are who you are because... God and the Holy Spirit. The recognition of your dependency and your, your, your need will draw you always to a point of humble understanding that I need God just like this person needs God. 
And it calls for self-examination. Verse 4, each one should test his own actions. So are you examining your own heart? You know, the thing that I find interesting in, in that is really easy to do, I, I know this in my own walk, it's really easy to get, get confused about these spiritual exercises. The church talks about you know, making sure you have time, which is a really good thing, to read God's Word, to, to maybe take some time in the morning to read and to, to quiet your heart and to pray. And what can happen so often is the, the reason we, that God encourages that and, and why people are to do this exercise for their spirit is not so that when they are doing it, they're going, God, see how much I love you, and, and God's patting you in the back. I mean, God's happy about that. But you know what, God, the reason He has you doing that is so that as you come before Him, you are able to keep your heart pure and continue to stay in His grace and remain in His love so that you can begin to examine your motives, you can begin to examine your actions, and you allow for God to woo, do those things within your spirit so that your spirit can grow, so you can better love people. The reason you have small groups or accountable relationships is so, hopefully, not because you can say, man, I'm in a small group, I'm in, a, you know, I'm in these accountable relationships, and isn't that cool, I'm spiritual. We get so messed up on these things. The reason you're in these relationships is because you want to have a heart that says, I want you in my life because I want to learn how to care and to love for someone. I want to be able to know how to step into someone's life to show that love, but I want you to do the same with me. I know because of my heart, I need you. And the reason we, we are close to one another and the reason we develop these kind of relationships is so that we can have that kind of relationship where we can help one another continue to stay step by step in the Spirit of God. And we do it all with a sense of gentleness and we do it all with the Spirit of humility, constantly examining our own heart so that we can love like God loves And so at a certain point, Paul gets to the end of this because he realizes, Paul, I love the Word of God. I love the Bible. It is so on target. Um, if you study it, if you superficially look at it, you can come up with all kinds of weird things. But if you study it and, and really seek to understand it, or if you put yourself under the understanding of it, you will begin to, to see how, how just practical it is. He says in verse 5, I want you to step in. He says in verse 2, step in and carry the burden so they can get back on their feet. But when you're doing this, be careful you don't get proud. Be careful that you examine your heart because you are called to only carry your own load. He knows how difficult it is for you and me to keep our personal boundaries. He basically uses this word. For each one has been given responsibility to carry their own load. Verse 2, the word burden here is not the idea of a crushing boulder at all. It is really the word backpack, knapsack. Paul is making this change right now. He's saying there are times you need to pick that boulder up and help a person get on their feet. But I want you to know that there's a certain point too where you need to live your life fully responsible for your own backpack. And you need to let that person carry their own backpack. The goal is to help someone whether it's a child in your family, whether it's a friend, whether it's a person who you have a relationship at work, the goal is always to help people understand God's love and to move fully with their life in full responsibility to take the life they've been given and to see it grow and mature. It's our job to help restore people so they can live that kind of life. So we're responsible to others partially, but responsible for ourselves fully. And the choice of words Paul is using is important. There's a definite distinction. Because one crushes 
The other doesn't. In fact, the idea of a backpack is that it's easy to carry. It's, it's, it's not burdensome. There's no connotation of difficulty. It's when Jesus came and he said, my burden is light. It's this idea that I'm not asking you to, to burden this, like this whole idea of trying to follow God by living under the law, this crushing burden. He's using the same kind of analogy here. I haven't asked you to live your life with poor boundaries so that you get involved in, in other people's lives and carrying actually their knapsack. The idea is that we carry a backpack through life, and the essence of it is this. This is what's in your personal backpack. I think this is really important stuff. This is what you are called and responsible to carry. You are called and responsible to carry your own thoughts, your own attitudes, your own opinions, your own beliefs, your own needs, your own choices, your own values, your own emotions, your time, your talents, your abilities, your behaviors, and your physical body. That's within your backpack. That's your life. That's what you're fully responsible for. That's what Paul wants you to know. You cannot put them off and have someone else carry any of those things. For instance, what would you think if I came up to you and said, would you work out for me this week so I can stay in shape? (laughs) Or would you make my choices for me for the next year? Or maybe for the next week? Or would you hold my anger? Or would you be responsible for my hurt? Would you shoulder my self-pity with me? Would you develop my abilities for me so that someday when I stand before God, I can say, look, these abilities have been really well developed? Is that foolish? But folks, we all do that. Talk about a pandemic. That is what is true within the lives of people, healthy, functional people like Jesus knew their personal boundaries. He stepped in and healed. He stepped in and did the things He needed to do. And then He called them to go on and sin no more and to live their life responsibly. Take responsibility for your life before God. Let me share with you, some of you who may be coming here and you're thinking that church, somehow this service or some things you go to is going to be responsible for your growth. You go to an adult class and you think because you fill your head with some knowledge, that's going to help transform you. It doesn't. You are responsible for the changes that occur within you. You think you go to a small group and you're accountable to some people, that somehow that's going to make a difference. I can tell you zillions of people who are involved in accountability groups that everyone's shocked when they step out of it and they realize this person hasn't been living an accountable life. Only you can choose those things. I just want to say to some dads, I don't know, I feel stunned to say this. You need to recognize that you are accountable for your family, their spiritual well-being. There are some things you're called to set. I want to say there are some people here who have been thinking in some ways that it's the church that is responsible for my salvation and my faith. No, you are. You have to come to a recognition of your need of God. You have to open your heart and say, God, I ask you to be in me. I ask you to transform me. I want you more than anything. We, we, we have people, all of us, who have been given bodies and, and, and God asks us to be responsible stewards of them. But the difficulty comes... 
that we want to, at times, and parents, because we have kids, and there's this process, there's this kind of this growing sense of responsibility in a child, we step in and we help form those little backpacks, and then at a certain point we don't know when to step out. It's what's called codependency. And Paul is so clear, and I love the Word of God, I love the Holy Spirit. The Bible is all about each and every one of us living fully the life God has given us. And doing it in such a way that as we get to know Him and His love and His mercy, that life changes our hearts and our hearts are transformed so that that life begins to flow through us. And you'll find, I've found, that the more I walk in this, the more I find myself, I, I see my sin, I, I find myself confessing and, and repenting a lot. And, and I was thinking the other day, I must just be really bad. Or, or maybe I'm just getting more aware. And at the same time, understanding that and becoming aware of these places that God is seeking to uncover and help us understand and help us to grow. At the same time, we also know this truth that God has given us His, His self, His, His life living in us, and, and He loves us, and, and he, He's given us all these abilities, and we're called to walk in the wonder of that kind of love and transform it. And when He exposes the dark stuff, we don't go, oh, and, and, and go into this place of shame and guilt. We just confess it to the Lord, and we walk in the freedom and the grace of His love and forgiveness forgiveness so that he can love and forgive other people. That's, I think, attractive to people. And so, I just want to ask you to think for a second. We're, love bears one another's burdens when they are crushing someone, but we're constantly told to keep our own load on our back and not try and carry someone else's. So let me ask you just a few questions. Do you allow others to state their opinions? Do you encourage others to share their convictions without causing them to feel inferior or less than or shamed? Do you encourage others to think for themselves, to draw their own conclusions? Or do you coerce and manipulate? Do you value the relationship of another person as being more important than the disagreement or the differences you have? Do you allow anger to be expressed appropriately? Parents, do you set limits with really appropriate consequences. Those are all things that teach people how to live within their own backpack. All these are personal boundary issues. And all this is about loving one another. And then the last thing he says is sharing with one another our blessings. I, I think he just kind of throws this one in as kind of a sweeping little thought. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, because in that church there were people who were beginning to share with them truths about God and beginning to take time and sacrifice their time from material gain in order to help spiritually other people. And so at a certain point in verse 6, he says to these people, anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. And the bigger principle is this, that when God shares with you a blessing, you need to bless others. In the church, he's talking about people who set aside time. He says people who set aside time to help you understand what it means to grow and to develop in the Spirit, and they help you develop this backpack of yours before God so it can become full in maturity before God. He says those of you who do that spiritual thing and those who are on the take on the material side, then just if they're doing these eternal things, would you just share some material things? Does that make sense? Another way to say it is, if, is, I think Paul is saying, if someone is sharing with you truths that are eternal in value towards your growth of your spirit, then at least you can do is share your temporal material blessings. But that's just one specific. There are all kinds of ways when God blesses you, you're to bless others. 
So Paul quickly moves to this principle in verses 7 through 10. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. He's making this just some simple points here. You'll grow what you sow. What you sow will take time to grow. And then he says, sow now among the needs that you see, that you know. He's extremely practical and realistic. He says, don't sell your house and move to the faraway mission field unless you've been called, like we just heard. Don't leave your job and enter seminary. Don't go looking for ways to please God out there. He says, right before you, look at your wife, look at your husband, look at your children, look at your friends, right in front of you are opportunities every day to love. And so do it right there, especially those among you who believe. Begin right where you're at. Because real love really loves those who are closest to you. And you don't kind of say, well, they'll love me anyway. And ever play that game? Now, they should love me. They're committed to me. Real love shows love to those you're closest to. Those opportunities are right before you. So as we draw a conclusion here in Galatians, Paul never tires telling people you can't win God's favor by doing good, yet at the same time, he says, never weary. He tells people this, never weary in doing good. Can't be good enough to gain his favor, but once you understand this good and loving God, then go out and respond to that love and do all kinds of good. Life in the Spirit leads to living in step with the Spirit, moment by moment, step by step, and it expresses love. Let me just close with an illustration I read in, in a book by Chuck Swindoll called Grace Awakening. It's, it's a great book. If you want to read about grace, I think he does a masterful job of explaining this. He tells the story that he had heard from a well-known Christian leader. And this Christian leader had shared with him about a legalistic goodness that was found, he said, throughout the church, and he heard a specific story in the mission field. When people, especially Christians, try and find their approval and acceptance before God by doing good spiritual things, he said they, they often become small-minded and petty, more concerned about themselves than really about others. And so he says a couple returned from the mission field because of the form of spiritual goodness that was really not that good at all. At one time, these people were hoping to be career missionaries of love and goodness, and they returned to the States because of a petty, legalistic, self-approving goodness. The particular place they were sent to serve did not have access to peanut butter, he writes. This particular family happened to enjoy peanut butter a great deal. So rather creatively, they made arrangements with some friends in the U.S. to send them peanut butter every now and then so they could enjoy it with their meals. The problem is they didn't know until they started receiving the supply of peanut butter that the other missionaries considered it a mark of spirituality that you not have peanut butter with your meals. Sounds really foolish, but this is true. So in all rights, I suppose the line went something like this. We believe that since we can't get peanut butter here, we should give it up for the cause of Christ or some such nonsense. A basis of spirituality was bearing the cross of living without peanut butter. You can substitute all kinds of things in all kinds of church communities. The young family didn't buy peanut butter. They didn't really buy into the the, the line of thinking about peanut butter like that. Their family kept getting regular shipments of peanut butter. 
They didn't fawn it. It's not like they went around with you know peanut butter sandwiches and saying, look, look, look. They just enjoyed it in the privacy of their own home. But pressure began to intensify. And you'd expect adult missionaries to be big enough to let others eat what they pleased, right? Wrong. The legalistic goodness was so petty, the pressure got so intense, and the exclusive treatment became so unfair, it actually finished this couple off. And they finally had enough. Unable to continue against the mounting pressure, they packed it in and were soon home, homeward bound, disillusioned, and, and really a bit cynical. Here is the classic case, which seems so foolish to us, of a group of people missing the whole point of the gospel. God was good to us so that we can be good to others. Yet good people lose focus and begin to place peanut butter style, clothes, length of hair, rings and ears, tattoos on bodies, forms of worship, architecture of church buildings, all other kinds of things in the place of the gospel. Jesus sets us free so that we can be free to love others from our hearts, not to please others with our rules, our opinions, or our personal convictions. Love looks like what Paul said. It means caring when someone's trapped. It means bearing a burden when someone's crushed. It means sharing blessing when you've been blessed. And that's the love God wants us to have. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love, for your kindness, for your goodness. Teach us, Lord Jesus, to walk, to carry our, our backpack, and to do those things that are prompted by your Spirit, that are told to us by your Word, that express your love as we trust you. Amen.